And then, if you will, go ahead and grab your Bibles and find your way to Jeremiah chapter 15. We're going to look at verses uh, 15 through 21 of that chapter as we have this week and next week are the kind of the last two uh, weeks of the series called Comeback that we've been walking through over the last month and a half or so. And, and looking at the places and the, the parts of our heart that God's calling us back to follow him. And so we've been walking through Jeremiah, who Jeremiah was a prophet that God called to speak to a certain group of people that were God's people in a certain time about the ways that they had wandered away from him and he had called them back. And so we've been talking about that. And so this morning when we get to chapter 15, after we've heard a lot over the last couple of weeks about what God is saying through Jeremiah to God's people about where they need to return to him, Today we're going to talk about Jeremiah specifically because after Jeremiah kind of walks through this season of like, God, okay, I'm in. I'll be your mouthpiece. I'll speak your truth to your people. Which, by the way, a lot of times when you speak the truth of God to people, people don't like the truth, so they don't like you. And that's exactly what Jeremiah was going through. He was being persecuted. His life was on the line. Nobody liked him. He was lonely. And so we get to chapter 15 of Jeremiah, and this is where we get Jeremiah's complaint. He starts complaining. Why? Because what he thought was supposed to look this way looks nothing like it. And so who does he turn on when things don't go his way? He doesn't turn on himself. He turns on who? God. And he starts pointing at the finger of God. God, why didn't you do this? Why haven't you done this? It's, it's, this, it's the same thing that you and I do in our life. And that's why today's call, it, the title of the message is coming back to purpose again. Because what you and I understand that God calls us into his family, he calls us into life, he calls us into purpose, and then we were set out with all this energy and passion and excitement, and then life happens, and then struggles come, and then we start to question, God, did you really speak? God, are you really there? God, did you leave me? I think it's really captured in, in the, the powerful words of the great theologian, the heavyweight champion, Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face, right? Anybody relate to that? Like, this is going to be great. And then, bam, life smacks you in the face. And you go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. I didn't know there was going to be pain involved. I know there was going to be suffering. I know there's going to be resistance or persecution. That wasn't part of the deal. But God says, no, that's, that's the way I'm leading you. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage because it, it outlines for us a number of things that are our own complaint, not just Jeremiah's complaint. And then how do we move forward through that complaint? So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and read verse 15 to verse 21 of Jeremiah 15. And then we'll talk through the passage together. So the Jeremiah, we're speaking to, to the Lord. He says, O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake, I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. And for I, have, I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone. Because your hand was upon me, for you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. You will utter what is precious and not what is worthless. You shall be as my mouth. They shall uh, turn to you, but you shall not turn to them." And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of words that, that Jeremiah uses. But I want to, I, I know there's a lot of ground to cover this morning, but I want to start with the way that you and I connect with Jeremiah because you and I are just like him. 
and we complain the same way that he complained to God, we complain today when things don't turn out our way. So when we are in our minds somehow justify that, okay, I'm trying to be good, I'm trying to live the right way, but bad stuff keeps happening, we start questioning. We start questioning God. And how do we question God? Just like Jeremiah did. Seven things I want to run through real quick. They're in the passage. We won't spend a whole lot on each of them, but just quickly. The first thing we question when, when we're good and life turns bad is we question God's presence. So verse 15, it's love that Jeremiah says. He says, remember me and visit me. It's like, uh, did you forget you're supposed to be with me? And it doesn't seem like you've been around lately. You haven't visited me lately. And so he feels this absence. He feels this isolation from God because it's not going the way he wanted to. And anybody ever admit you've ever felt like you've been isolated from God, God's absent? You know, one of the things that's true, and this is hard from our perspective because we don't see the whole picture. We don't see all of what God sees. But the whole concept of isolation or the concept of absence is our perception, and it's not reality. We think because of our circumstances are going a certain way that somehow God has vacated and left and now we're isolated and God has no power or no play in what's going on in our life. We're just on our own. But that's the perception because God is always present. Now, he may be letting things unfold in our life in a certain way, but it's never outside of his power. It's never outside of his presence because he's always with us. Even though we, because we have certain reasons why we think he's with us because we see him and feel him and experience him. But when we feel silence, we think, God, you're not here. So I think I've shared this before, but real briefly, my, my nephew, uh, when he was growing up, he had a tendency to wander off on his own, just do his own thing. And so uh, my brother-in-law, uh, Larry Powers, who's spoken here, many of you know him, Larry's a great guy, but he was trying to help his son to not wander off and just to teach him things. And so he knew that there's opportunities that would arise. He said, okay, here's a teaching moment. So we were, as a family, we were up in San Francisco, we were at Fisherman's Wharf, we were going through some stores. And just like Jeremy normally did, Jeremy wandered off on his own, and you could tell he lost contact with the rest of us. And so Larry was watching this, and so he told the rest of us, which is about 15 of us, he said, you guys go. We're going to go down to Ghirardelli Square. So he goes, you guys start walking. He goes, I'm going to stay here. We're like, okay. So we left. Now, I didn't know what was going on, but what he was doing is he was, he was kind of watching Jeremy walk through this store. Jeremy had no idea that everybody else had left. He was all by himself. He's looking, I think it was, it was some kind of like um, Warner Brothers or something, and so he was like cartoon characters, and he was like in, in heaven, and he had lost track of everybody else. And then that moment, he kind of came to himself, and he realized he looked around the store, and he went into panic mode because everybody was gone. He couldn't find mom and dad. And meanwhile, my brother-in-law, Larry, standing just at the entrance of the store, and he's watching the panic start to kick in, and he's thinking, this is good. <laughs> and then Jeremy starts running for the front of the store, and he bursts to the front of the store, and there's Larry standing there. Jeremy's just in tears. And what do you think the first thing out of his mouth was? I was so afraid because I thought everybody had left me. And of course, Larry starts crying and Jeremy's crying and one of those great moments where Larry said, I will never leave you. I will always be here. But you need to learn not to leave me. It was a powerful moment. Now, I never had that moment with Courtney or Jordan. I had other moments, but I thought, wow, that's a good dad. Why? Because he's trying to show his son that he's going to be present but not to wander off and to get too far from his dad. Second thing, second complaint or second way we question is we question God's fairness. Going on in verse 15, Jeremiah says, says, know that for your sake, I bear reproach. What he's saying is, God, look at what I've done for you. I did this all for you. I'm, I'm, I'm taking on the reproach of people and the attitudes of people and people pushing back. And I'm doing this all for you. It's almost like he's falling on his sword. Like, look at what I've done for you, God. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know there's those moments in our life where we feel like we've done really well, 
and because of that, God, God is supposed to reward us, and we don't get the reward, and we're like, God, did you see what I did? Aren't you proud of me? Didn't I do a good thing? Yes, God is proud of us, and God is concerned about the details of our life, but here's the reality. When you and I buy into that mentality, where we say to God, look at what I've done, what we're trying to do now is we're trying to justify, our, justify ourselves based on merit, which means if I'm good enough, then God notices me, God likes me, God loves me. That is the opposite of the way God engages humanity. How does God engage people? Through a thing called grace. Grace is the opposite of merit. And the reason that we know this is true is because God's response to us, when we say to God, look at what I've done for you, you owe me. You know what God, how God responds to humanity? He says, no, no, no. Look at what I've done for you. You don't owe me. What did, what did God do for us? It's the cross. It's Jesus' death. It's his son, the, the, the son of God being sacrificed for the sin of all people for all time. Every moment of failure in our life, Jesus gives his life for. That's called what? Grace. We didn't deserve it. I would rather not live under merit. I would rather live under grace because I know I will never be good enough. I'll never be good enough for God. I'll never be good enough to earn his favor. That's why there is grace in our lives. And there's a third thing. We strive to be good when life is bad, and we question God's guidelines. Jeremiah goes on in verse 16. He says, your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. What is he talking about? The words, your instructions, your guidelines, your rules. That's what Jeremiah is saying. And those, those were a delight. I was living those out in my life. What was Jeremiah saying to God? I followed the rules. Isn't that worth anything, God? I, I followed the rules. Now, now life's supposed to be good when I follow the rules. Anybody ever felt that? Yes, we all have. Like, God, I'm, I'm doing the right thing here. There's a problem. God, Jesus didn't die on the cross to create a bunch of rule followers. Like, what? Are we supposed to be obedient? Yeah. But he died on the cross to transform our souls. Pharisees, religious leaders in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, which were called what? Hypocrites. They were what? They follow the rules. Why? So they could somehow obligate God to do good things for them. But it didn't work. It's like, anybody remember the original, not the remake, the original uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Okay. The whole thing, the whole premise is what? Willy Wonka's looking for the right person to leave all of his fortune to. And who is he looking for? So when you walk through it, you, are, you think that what he's looking for is rule followers. Because every child that violates a rule, what, misses out. And so when you get to the end of the movie and, you know, Willy Wonka's in his funky little office with everything's halved. And so he says, that's it. Contest over. Nobody wins. And then Charlie's grandfather goes off and says, how dare you dash the hopes of these children, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, Charlie comes over and he sticks the everlasting gobstopper on Willy Wonka's desk. And then he pulls away. See, because earlier, if you were if you've watched the movie, Grandpa was going off about how they had followed all the rules and so Charlie deserves all of the chocolate in the factory and everything. And then Willy Wonka responds and says, no, no, you drank fizzy lifting drinks. You broke the rules. That's what he said. And what is he saying to him? He's going back to him and saying, you want to go rules on me right now? That's what he's saying. I'll go rules. I have you violating one of the rules. So if you want all of this inheritance to be based on rules, then you don't qualify. But then when, what, when Charlie gives back the gobstopper, it reveals his heart. And then Willy Wonka turns and he says, it's all yours. Why? Because it wasn't about rule following. What was it about? He wanted his heart. 
And that is a beautiful image of the way that God works with us because we're so like, I obeyed the rules, I obeyed the rules. No, you should obey the rules because your heart's right, not because you want to earn God's favor. Don't go rules on God because you'll always lose. When we start telling God, hey, I obeyed your rules, he will find something in our life, maybe one thing or maybe a thousand things where we didn't obey the rules. So don't go rules on God. Jeremiah is trying to do it, and God's like, no, 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 don't do that. That's not the way we relate. That's not the way it works. Going on, there's a fourth thing going on in verse 16, and that is that we question our own identity. So Jeremiah says, for I am called, or another word is bear your name. He says, God, I belong. Do you remember? I'm one of yours. He's saying, I'm a child of God. Anybody, we've, we've made that proclamation. I belong to you, God. I am, I am a child of God. And, and you're like, I don't feel like a child. I feel like more like an orphan. I feel like when, when, when God, you're supposed to show up in my life, I'm, I have no covering. You're not there. Life's not going well. And so we feel this sense of isolation. That's what Jeremiah was feeling. You feel like he's, he's like, I bear your name. I, I belong to you, but you don't treat me like, at least he thinks, God's not treating him like one of his own. He's treating him like he's an enemy or like he's forgotten about him. Sometimes we walk through our life and our identity is what? Is woes me, poor me. I'm orphaned. God doesn't care about me. I become the victim of my own life. It's not true. You and I make ourselves the victims, but we're never the victims. In fact, there's a difference because Jesus' death on the cross changes you and I from being victims to being victors. There's a huge transition that happens. I don't have to be a victim of my own life. Why? Because Jesus has already taken care of me. We're going to move through this. I know there's a lot. Look at the, the next one on verse 17. The fifth thing that we question is we question our obedience. So he says, I didn't sit in the company of revelers. I didn't rejoice. I sat alone. Why? Because your hand was upon me, and you filled me with indignation. He was saying, listen, I wasn't going to be like everybody else. I wasn't going to go down this road of disobedience just like everybody else. In fact, you put in me indignation towards other people's sin. I didn't go join the party. I didn't go go with the crowd. I stayed separate from them. I was obedient. And so, again, he's trying to justify himself and saying, listen, I was obedient, so therefore I'm good enough. There's a problem with that. You and I can never be obedient enough. Sooner or later, we're going to turn on God. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And this is what happens. When you and I are obedient to God and we don't get what we think we deserve, then you and I start looking elsewhere for what we think we need. This is true of God's people throughout history. Israel did it. When God gave them everything, when they got into the land that God promised them, he had given them so much, and what did they do? They start looking around, and they start sacrificing to idols of other nations, and then in the, it's crazy, is that God had appointed people to oversee them and given give his spirit and, and dwelt with them, and then they said this. They said, we want a king. Why? Because we want to be like everyone else. Why? Because somehow they thought that God, even though they thought they were obedient, God wasn't good enough and didn't give them what they wanted, so they wandered off to idols, to other things. We do the same thing. Because we think somehow in our obedience, God is, we're justified in expecting God to do something for us. And then there's two more ways that we question. We question our suffering. Boy, verse 18, have we all said this in one form or another? Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? We feel that. God, why don't you just take this away? Why don't you just remove this? Why is the suffering part of my life? Can't you just change things? And then there's this. Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul says, there's far more to this life than trusting in Christ. Just stop for a moment. You're like, what? There's more to this life? He goes on. There's also suffering for him. And the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. You're like, no, the Bible can't say that. You just put that in there, Pastor John. Yeah, Paul said that. And that comes from a guy who probably suffered more 
than anybody else except for Jesus himself. He said, that's part of it. Trusting God means suffering. And both suffering and trusting are what? A gift from God. That God is working out something in our lives. And the reason suffering can be viewed as a gift is it always asks a question of us. Do I trust God? That's what suffering always screams to us. Because suffering comes in the face of what we think is a good God, and because of that, it tests us. It tests us to, to ask that question of ourselves. Do I trust in the goodness of my life, or do I trust in the goodness of God? There's a big difference. The goodness of life is I can trust God as long as my life's good. What are you trusting? You're not trusting God. You're trusting the goodness of your life. But can you trust when life is bad that God is still good? That means even in the midst of your suffering, he's still working. He's still working. He's still present in your life. So these are the things that, that, that Jeremiah continued to complain about, which leads to the last complaint, and then we'll talk about the good news. But that is the last part of verse 18. We question God's promise. He says, will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? This is really pointed thing that Jeremiah is saying. If you were here in the early part of this, this series, we were in chapter 2, and God used this imagery with people and says, why are you building your cisterns that crack and they can't hold water. If you remember, we talked about that. And God said, I am the spring of living water, yet you turn your back on me and you try to build your own cisterns, which was an imagery that in first century, or uh, in, in Palestine in, in that time, in, in, that, in that region of the air, before first century, but in that time, people would try to hold water in cisterns that would crack because of tremors and earthquakes, and they could never hold water. So they constantly were maintaining their cisterns, but they couldn't hold the water. And God says, I am living water, and you walk away from me. So this is kind of scary. Jeremiah almost throws it back in God's face and says, yeah, you're the spring of life, but are you going to fail me? Are you going to dry up on me? Are you not going to be present in my life? So he's questioning the very promise that God gave to his people that I will be an unending source of life to you. And Jeremiah questions that promise. Now, you don't have to raise your hand because that's a scary thing, but all of us have done that, haven't we? We've questioned God's promise in our life. So those are the questions that emerge out of Jeremiah's complaint, and they are very accurate to the way that we complain against God. But here's the good news. Look at verse 19. How do I re-engage God's purpose? How do I come again to what God has drawn me out to, to follow him and the purpose even that he has in my life? Look at verse 19. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, this is what God says back to Jeremiah. He says, if you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. You will be restored to what you were before. If you stop, basically, this is what God's saying. He's saying, stop complaining, change your direction, follow me again, and I'll restore everything in your life. That's what he's saying. He's pr pretty much telling Jeremiah to stop complaining. Just like we, if you have kids, you always tell your kids, be quiet, stop complaining. Maybe we say form things like, shut up. That's a strong word, but that's what God's saying to Jeremiah. Hey, 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 stop complaining. Be quiet. Follow me again, and I will restore you. So how does that look? How does that break down? The promises that God wants to restore in our life, there's four of them that Jeremiah outlines that God, and here's his, or God's response to Jeremiah. Look at verse 19. The first promise that comes out of this is that God promises restoration of his purpose. What is purpose? It's meaning. It's the meaning of our life. It's the reason that we exist. It's knowing Jesus and following him, but it's the significance that he gives to our lives and the purpose that we have because we know him. He restores that. Jeremiah says, it, it, God says, if you return, I'll restore you. If you stand or you serve before me, then he's going to what? He's going to bring all these things back. Why is that important? Because you and I have a struggle when, when it comes to being restored in life. Because we give up on other people and we give up on ourselves long before God ever gives up on anybody. 
this concept of restoration is foreign to us. Because when something no longer has any use to us, what do we do? We dispose of it. And so when we look at our lives and we feel like we've lost meaning and purpose in our life, what do we do? We dispose of our lives. It doesn't necessarily mean that we end our lives. For some, that's reality and that's, that's tragic. But we just stop living. We stop pursuing. We stop going after what God wants. Why? Because we're done. We don't think there's anything left. Why? Because God has disappointed us. He hasn't come through. I question everything. God's not there. So I'm just going to live the life I want to live. So we stop really living. Why? Because we give up on something. A good friend of mine used to be a, a Saturn mechanic. Anybody remember Saturns, like the automobile that used to exist? Every once in a while, you'll see a Saturn sighting, you know, that are still driving on the road. But he, he was a pretty good mechanic, and, he's in, uh, and we went through a period of time where when, when the kids were first born, we went down to one car to save money. And so I, I had no, we didn't have money to get a second car. But one day he called me, he said, hey, he said, I have a car for you. I said, great, I have no money. He goes, this is still a possibility for you. I'm like, okay. He goes, this woman came in yesterday with this 1993 Saturn. This is like 10 years old. She blew the engine on it. I don't know what she was doing. She was so fed up. She came into dealership. She goes, I don't even care if you give me a dime for this. I'm done with this car. I want to buy a new one here. It's yours. And they're like, hmm. So he goes, I bought it. He goes, I bought it for like a thousand bucks. And now for him, that was nothing because he knew what he could do. And he goes, I'll tell you what. He goes, and he gave me a really cheap deal. He goes, if I rebuild the engine, would you want the car? I'm like, yeah. You don't really want to drive a Saturn, but hey, <laughs> who's going to argue, right? So he restores the engine, and he gives me the car. That car, which was 10 years old, ran without fail for another 10 years that I had it for. And then after that, it was still in good condition, but as our family was changing, I needed to get another car, and so we gave it to a staff member up in Oregon for free because it was like they didn't have a car. And the last thing I know, this is like 10 years ago or so, it's still running. <laughs> so 20 years of life left in that car with, a, with an overhaul on the engine, and this woman gave up after 10. Who knows, that Saturn may be in eternity. I don't know, maybe there's some special touch on it. But how many times have you just said, yeah, this is too much, I'm done, I'm trading it in, forget it. And God says, what are you doing? If you'll return to me, I'll restore everything. I'll restore the purpose of your life instead of giving up. So that's the first thing. Second thing is in, the, in verse 20. God promises to fulfill his purpose. Not only to restore it, but to fulfill it. So it goes on in verse 20, it says, I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail over you. Why is that significant? Because Jeremiah feels like he's losing the battle. People aren't listening. His life is in danger. They're pushing him. And then God says, oh, no, no, no. My purpose is for you to be the mouthpiece. So therefore, I'm going to make you like bronze. They can't penetrate you. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. And that's this belief that even in the difficult times, God will still fulfill his purpose. So just so you know, God doesn't take time off from his purpose in your life. You and I do, but he doesn't. He keeps pursuing his purpose, even in the midst of suffering or persecution or difficulty. He's still working out his purpose, and that's why he will give you and I strength in the middle of suffering, in the middle, middle of difficulty. That's why Paul said these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. After all that Paul had gone through, he says what? I have fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. Why can Paul say that? Because Paul, just like Jeremiah, was not popular. People didn't like him. When he spoke the truth, they pushed back against him. But Paul, through all of this, said, listen, I have still kept consistent. Why? Because God has sustained me through all of this. That I can, I can finish what, what God has placed me on this planet to do. He's completing in my life. 
And now I'm getting to the end towards the finish line, and I can see this. Do you and I believe that? That God is still fulfilling his purpose. I don't know where you are. You might think, you know, I've gone through so many physical ailments. I can't even do what I used to do. How in the world can God still be fulfilling his purpose? Maybe his purpose looks different now than it did 10 years ago. But if you still have life in you, you have blood in your veins and oxygen in your lungs, then God is not done with his purpose in this world in your life. Because God is the one who chooses the timing of when you will go to see him. Maybe there's another question. And I've thought about this, and I think about this a lot, and sometimes it's, the answer is not very good. Think about your life today. Now, God's trying to fulfill his purpose in your life, but day in and day out, your life that you live today, can you with great confidence say to God, your, your purpose is being fulfilled in my life every day? Think about the life that you're living right now. I'm not asking you to divulge any information, but the life that you live today, if Jesus suddenly walked into your life in the flesh, could you say with confidence, yes, every moment of every day, I am fulfilling the purpose that you gave me on this planet. There are moments I think, man, I am not anywhere close to what I know God's called me to be. And there's challenges in those moments where God comes along and says, is this what I want for you? Is this what you're supposed to be? Is this what your time and energy is supposed to be about? Is this fulfilling my purpose? And there's, there's, there's a course correction that comes along and says, whoa, wait a second. I need to look at my life again. Because it's really easy to disengage from God's purpose and just get lulled into a day-to-day -day life that one day looks similar than the day before. And there's no difference. Why? Because it's what the culture tells us to. You gotta work a job. You gotta make money. You gotta buy things. You gotta eventually own a house. And all these things, you have to have a retirement. Why? Because that's the only way you're gonna be happy. And what does that do? It just puts us to sleep. Maybe God's purpose looks different. Maybe God has something greater than the life that we live. And then there's the, the third point of God's promise is that he will restore in our life, and that is he will, he promised his presence in his purpose. So going on verse 20, God says, Jeremiah, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. He's reminding Jeremiah again, hey, in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the pain, guess what? I'm still here. I haven't gone anywhere. And there's something that happens. I've watched it. I've seen it in my life, but I've seen it happen in, in people who have suffered so much more than I've suffered in my life. And I'll encounter them, and I'll expect them to be bitter and angry and upset at God, and they have more peace with more suffering than I've ever had in my life. And I'm like, I don't understand you. And so when I get bitter and I get upset at God, I'm like, I have no right. I, I haven't suffered like they've suffered, but there's this peace that they're walking through, even in surroundings that they shouldn't be at peace. They should have anxiety. They should be overwhelmed. They should complain, but they have peace. Why? Because God brings a supernatural peace in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of his purpose, even when it isn't easy. If you don't think that's true, then talk to a missionary. Talk to a missionary that will move to a country where they don't know the language, they don't understand culture, they don't like the food, they're in a place where they're on their, their life is on the line because they're being persecuted, and yes, it's difficult, and yes, it's hard, and yet you talk to them, and there's this security in them. That if tomorrow morning they woke up, and that was the last day of their life, they would be somehow okay with it. Why? Because God is fulfilling his purpose. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you, go online and watch the Haiti update. The team did an amazing job of bringing Haiti to us. But one of the things that stood out, I didn't, I'll ask for forgiveness, I didn't ask for permission, but Sherry Roberts was sharing, and Sherry's been, Sherry, there you are, sorry, I'll ask for forgiveness after this. I don't, how many times have you been to Haiti now? 
seven times. She said something that just caught my attention. She says, every time when we land in Port-au-Prince and we go into the airport, she's like, I feel like I'm home. Now, for those of you who've been to Haiti, you're like, really? Haiti feel like home and you're not Haitian? You're crazy. What is that that Sherry's describing? It's the peace of God that settles on somebody that is living out and fulfilling God's purpose in that day. And that's what happens so many times. And, it's, it, and that's why I've seen people who are outside of their comfort zone experience more peace than people who live inside their comfort zone. Because when you live inside your comfort zone, you're trying to create your own peace, and you can't do it. But when you and I step out and let God bring the peace, then it has nothing to do with our surroundings. It has everything to do with what God is doing in us, his presence that's in us. And this is the final thing that I want to touch on. Uh, look at verse 21. The final thing of God's promise is that he promises redemption by his purpose. So he says in verse 21, I will deliver you out of the hands of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. So this is a really important concept, especially for God's people and even for Jeremiah, this concept of redemption. It's the word that gets used in the New Testament. It's the word that gets used to describe the process that we go through when Jesus brings to bear his death and resurrection on our life and we are bought or redeemed from a broken way of life. Redemption is, you know, the easiest thing is it used to be, you know, it used to be like you could actually, you know, get money for bottles. You didn't just throw it in the recycle bin. And it used to have a lot of things, even today, it'll say what, it'll say redemption value on it. What is that? You pay, you, you return this and that you're paid a certain amount to what? Redeem that. Or we use the word even recycle so that there's more life left in that. So this concept of redemp redemption means that, that even though I feel like I'm at the end, even though I feel like God has failed me, even though I feel like I've failed, all that mixed together, God comes along and says, no, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to purchase you back and give you purpose and meaning in your life again. He says this to Jeremiah, and he says this to us, that we are being redeemed, which means redemption means there's a journey from where we used to be to where God wants us to be, and it comes through his death and resurrection that says what you used to be, you no longer have to be. You are free to be who I created you to be. And there's this journey that all of us have to go on. And Jeremiah has gone through this cycle where God was using him. He's speaking to him. And this is what God is using him as his mouthpiece. And then he gets pushed back. And like Mike Tyson said, he gets punched in the face. And his response is to complain. says, God says, whoa, 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 whoa. Even in your complaint, even in your suffering, I'm going to take what is broken and worthless in your life and I'm going to give it value again. For some of us, that's important today. Your life has lost value. And it's not because God has lost value of you. You've lost value of yourself and what God can do through you because you've disqualified yourself because of your own failure or because the struggles that you've gone through, you've pushed back on God. And God says, today I want to restore you. Today I want you. And here's a, the best image of it. There's, and I felt this this morning. I was praying early this morning. God said this. He said, there's people who are sitting on the bench because they're self, they've self-disqualified themselves. They've removed themselves from my work and they think that I can't redeem them and they need to hear today that I can redeem anybody and everybody belongs in the game. The game is following Jesus. The game is living out his purpose. The game is the way that God has created you to live your life. He doesn't want us sitting on the bench. Jesus died for too much for us to dial it in until we die and somehow we hope to go to heaven. There's too much at stake in your life and God calls us out of this. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come and join me. We're going to, we're going to go into one last song. But before we do that, it's so important. There's a, there's a journey that God wants us to take from where we are or the way we see us, even the way we see him, to who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live and the way we're supposed to view him in our lives.
And I want us to capture it today because it's so important for, I believe, the way that God wants to seal what he wants to do in us this morning. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because I'm going to, in a moment, I don't normally do this, but I, I felt this morning that the Lord wanted me to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some statements specifically. There are a declaration over each person in this room today. And they come in the form of what you may feel right now, but then the response is what God says is true and wants to be true about your life. So with your eyes closed, I want you to hear this because I'm trusting that by God's spirit who is here, that's God's presence in us and around us, that God is going to open your heart and your mind and your eyes to one of these or maybe three of these or maybe five of these, I don't know, that say, yeah, that's me, but God's saying now this is what's true of my life, that he can redeem in me and he can restore his purpose again in me and he can bring value to me. And so would you just hear these, these statements? You have said this about your life. You have said, I'm lost. But today, God says, you are found. You're no longer lost. You're here. God's presence is here. He's here to meet you where you're at. You have said of yourself, I am worthless. God, in his great mercy and grace, looks down and lovingly shakes his head and says, no, you are priceless. You have said of yourself, I'm just a sinner. I'm always going to be a sinner. Keep messing up. It's just the story of my life. God looks down at you through the death of Jesus, his son, and he says, no. You are no longer a sinner. I call you saint. Because you have been saved. You've been washed. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus over your life. It says you no longer are identified as a sinner, but you are a saint before God. You have said of yourself, I'm an orphan. I'm on my own. I got to make things work for my own. I got nobody to back me up. God has left me. And because of that, I got to make my own way. God looks down at you today and he says, no. He says, you are a son. You are a daughter. Because I have adopted you into my family and made you one of my own you are not a second-class citizen. You are not, not an adopted son or daughter that somehow is less than the biological family. You are one and the same. You are, and the Bible says, a co-heir with Jesus, the Son of God. So you are not an orphan. You are a son. You are a daughter. You may have said this of your life. I am useless. You look at your life and think there's, there's no purpose in it. There's nothing that's of use to it. And God looks at you and says, no, no, no. The opposite is true. You are more than just useless. You are actually extremely valuable to me. You are valuable because I died for you. I gave you life. I breathed existence into who you are. And because of that, you're valuable. Maybe you said, I'm, I'm separated, I'm isolated, I'm like the lost sheep that is removed from the flock and I've got wolves around me. And because of this, I feel this sense of separation and God says, no, I left the 99 to bring you not only back to me, but back to the 99 so that you are not isolated or separated, you are united. 
and I say that in this room right now with your eyes closed, you are sitting in a room full of people who are not perfect, but are striving to love Jesus. And the only isolation you may have is you have chosen isolation, you have chosen separation, but all you have to do is reach out and say, hey, I need someone's help. I need someone to pray for me. I need someone to agree with me that I am not only valuable to God, I am not only reunited with God, I am reunited with his body, with his family. You say, I'm an outsider. I am always on the outside looking in. I am never one who's in, never an insider. I'm always an outsider. I never am a part. I'm always outside. I always want to be in, but I'm never in. It's because I failed, because I'm not good enough. And so I'm always trying to reach into what I feel like God's wanting to do, but I'm always on the outside. And God says, no, no, I destroyed the wall of separation that now causes you by Jesus' power in your life to be an insider, part of his family just a couple more you say I'm guilty yeah you you and I we're all guilty we are guilty of sin but what happens is when your guilt attaches to your identity then you live in a thing called shame and so because of that you constantly live in shame because of your guilt and that weight of shame keeps you at a distance from God it keeps you at a distance from people but here's the good news Jesus death on the cross makes this statement you are no longer guilty you are innocent you're like, no, 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 you don't know me, Pastor. I'm not yet. No, no, God knows you. And through forgiveness that comes through Jesus' death on the cross, God looks at you and says, you are pure, you are washed, you are innocent before me. You feel like a slave today. You've been in bondage. You feel disqualified because you keep repeating the same sin over and over and over again and you can't break free. God's saying today is the day that you can break free from that because you don't have to be a slave because you were meant to be free. But freedom means you walk away from your chains. You walk away from your bondage. You tell somebody that what you're walking through and you walk out of that prison cell together into the freedom of Jesus. And then finally, you have said of yourself, I feel dead inside. There's no emotion, it's only apathy. There's nothing there. And Jesus says, not true. For those of you, if you've said yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God lives you and Jesus says today, you are no longer dead, but you are alive. And as God gave the demonstration of breathing life into dead bones in Ezekiel, through that prophecy, I believe today God wants to breathe new life into your soul. He wants to undo the lies that you have bought into, and he wants you to realize you have transitioned from death to life. And in a moment, we're going to sing a song that talks about grace to grace, which means I move from one moment of God's grace in my life, not my merit, not my ability, not my sin, not my, my slavery, not all those things, but I move from this moment of God's grace in my life, of changing me, to the next moment of God's grace in my life, to the next moment of God's grace in my life, to the next moment where God shows up in my suffering and says, I'm going to come by grace and bring you peace. To the next moment of my failure where God says, I'm going to come by grace and give you forgiveness. To the next moment of bondage that God says, I'm going to come by grace and give you freedom. From grace to grace in our life. So Jesus, as we sing this song, as we conclude our time together today, Lord, I pray that not one person would leave this place the same way that they've come. That you would see that you're calling us again to your purpose to be what you called us to be, to give value to our lives. So Jesus, would you resurrect what's dead in us 
so that when we leave today, we not only feel a sense of joy, but we feel a sense of purpose and life as we enter into our lives again different than when we came. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.